Hi, my name is Kriti Mehrutra from Paper Crane Society. I'm, I will be your host for the podcast today. And with me, I have Miss um, Audrey DeMello. I'm, I hope that's how you pronounce your surname. Um, yes. From Majlis. Um, from Majlis. And we will be having a podcast basically about your organization. So hi, Audrey. Hi. Okay. Um, the founder of Majlis is advocate Flavia Agnes. Uh, mm-hmm. She's a women's rights lawyer and a pioneer in the field. Um, she started Majlis in uh, 1991 uh, okay. as uh, as an in, as an organization who would um, help women and children who are facing violence, and are. Um, and our focus currently and has always been on the issue of domestic violence and sexual violence. Mm-hmm. So our work primarily is that we are a team of women lawyers and social workers. And uh, we are um, providing both social and legal support to victims of violence to help them walk this very difficult journey. So that's a little bit of background. I had a couple of questions that we had prepared beforehand um, for you. And I think one of the first primary questions that me and uh, the team had while we were deriving them is, what is the universal sign for help? Um, when Because I think over social media, a lot of people have been spreading around that the universal sign for help is a fist with a thumb tucked in. So... Um... I have seen this sign, but, uh, you know, I'm really not familiar with it. We have never promoted it as an organization and I have not seen it as a campaign in India. So I'm really not sure whether uh, it is a universal sign, though I did kind of come across it in social media on an occasion where, you know, I saw an advertisement. But beyond that, I'm not aware of what it means and what it's supposed to do. Okay. Um, thank you very much for that insight. I think it's really interesting to see because um, there are a lot of social media trends or there is a lot of movements on social media that are very um, well-meaning, but they gain some traction and they might not have enough credibility. So another question that we had is that um, what do you basically do when you are trapped in an abusive relationship? I know this might be a little controversial question to answer. Um, so just to clarify, are you asking me in a long-term abusive relationship or are you saying that when there is a sudden uh, bout of abusive behavior, what should somebody do? Uh, because they're completely two different uh, things that you know we're talking um, about. So I would actually like the answer to both of those uh, questions. So um, I think, could you just first clarify what one should do in a long-term abusive relationship and then go on to the next part? So um, like I told you, we work with victims of rape and sexual abuse and domestic violence. Um, and off late, if you know, after the big incident that happened in India in 2012, uh, where a girl was raped in a bus, uh, and she subsequently died, um, because there was a lot of violence, um, on her. And, um, after that, there was this whole spate of encouragement by different 
corporates and even people at home and around the place to say that, you know, women should carry pepper spray, women should carry knives and women should carry objects to protect themselves. Right. And I was terrified with the idea because I, I, I work with victims of rape. I know the situations that happen. Firstly, it's a myth that uh, rape happens by strangers in public spaces. Uh, when I say it's a myth, what I mean is that majority of cases of rape and sexual violence happen by known people and usually happens in homes. And when mm -hmm. I say known people, they're actually very closely known to the victim. They're either family members, neighbors, friends, etc. So if the pepper spray, etc. was to be used in this rare instances of stranger rape, then I used to be terrified with the idea because one is that we don't know how to use these objects uh, and they actually can cause harm to the victim herself because, you know, if the accused can overpower her, then he can use the same object on her. I was actually did a lot of awareness with with young people about how they should actually not carry anything. And if you are faced with, an, in, with a sudden abuse attack, then the best, best thing you can do is not do anything. And I know it may sound controversial and against all norms because, you know, we're constantly taught that we have to protect our uh, virginity, we have to protect our honor, we have to, you know, fight back and, you know, this is what we have been taught and this is what we believe. But um, I always equate it to a, a mugging incident or attack where, you know, we tell young boys that if you are mugged, please do not try to fight, please do not try to save your valuable, just, just let it go. Because at that time, that that weapon or whatever they are using can be used to take your life and your life is more important than anything else. I have always advocated that, you know, you're always protect your life first. And if it means not doing anything in an overpowering situation, then don't do anything. Because whatever has to be done can be done later. But the fact that you attempting to do something or you attempting to uh, attack the person or do something to that person will, will invariably and only um, lead further uh, further violence on you and could lead to a situation of where Nirbhaya was uh, where she finally died. Uh, and I do give this example because uh, we have this horrific case of Delhi but we also had a case in Bombay called the Shakti Mills case. And uh, in that case, the, the, we, we handled that case. And uh, in that case, the girl uh, just kept speaking to the attackers. It was a case of gang rape in a mill in Bombay. And um, she was very young. But what she kept doing is uh, speaking to the attackers saying, please don't harm us. There was a boy with her. He was at knife point. And she kept saying, you know, just be gentle. Please do not harm us. And ironically, at the end of that whole gang rape incident, they actually walked her and this boy out of the mill onto the main road because otherwise they would have, it would have been impossible for them to find the main road. It was so, uh, you know, it was such a, a vast area. 
um, and I say that's the difference between life and death. And you know, this this young girl actually had attended a majlis workshop in her college days and had and had heard us speaking about you know how in an in a extremely um, attacking, abusive kind of situation one should not. What uh, what what are the things that we can do? So that that is primarily what I'm talking about is in a sudden attack situation uh, where somebody is using weapons or somebody can overpower you. Um, but then your second question was about in a long-term abusive relationship, what can one do? Now that yeah. is usually intimate partner violence. One must remember that there is a cycle of violence and there is an abusive pattern of violence. Uh, so abuser is not always violent. He's sometimes loving and sometimes violent. And that's why you call it trapped. Because right. there is a violent situation, then there is a love situation, then there's a making up time, then there is a, another violent situation. And this is the cycle of violence. Correct. Women, I, I, this is my belief, that women face, women live in abusive relationships really because they don't have an alternative. And when I say they don't have an alternative, it sometimes could be that there is really no support from their family. Mm -hmm. There is maybe no social support in that area or there are no options in that area allowing her to leave this abusive relationship. And so in that case, what she does is make the most of her situation and accepts the violence and just lives with it. Right. So the, the, the onus is not on her as to what she can do in an abusive relationship, the question to ask is what the rest of us are doing wrong that is making women live in abusive relationships. Okay. Um, and I think there has to be, there definitely has to be more uh, focus on that part. But um, and I, I'm, and I'm saying this actually because, you know, very young students work with me. They volunteer with us. And they keep talking about what the victim should do. So, one of the things they always tell me is, ma'am, we should tell victims about what is domestic violence. You know, domestic violence is not only physical violence. It is this violence and that violence. So I always ask them, you think she doesn't know? And they say, no, ma'am, she doesn't know. She is uh, just accepting her violence and she doesn't know this is violence. So I always tell people that even a young, absolutely infant child knows what is violence and what is not so it's not true that she does not know this is violence what is true is that she doesn't really have an option so she's doing what we all do in situations where we don't have an option which is we just pretend it doesn't exist i mean these are like very highly traumatic um, incidents i think um, I had read about abuse where it had turned into uh, such an abusive relationship which lasted for several, several years and the parents weren't able to do much or the friends weren't able to do much. And this person who was stuck in this relationship, um, she started facing PTSD where she would get flashbacks or she would have sleep paralysis because of the amount of trauma that had basically built up over the years. I think that's really a really scary, terrifying prospect. And I think you are right that it is really, really necessary for 
us to educate ourselves as to how to protect or how to reach out to loved ones who we believe are in abusive relationships and because if we can be strong support we can be a strong support to those people i'm pretty sure that they would be able to um that uh, they will be able to at least like come out of those immediately violent situations and um kind of um basically just work on themselves and um try to like get out of that traumatic situation and understand how it wasn't their fault and it and i think we ready we as like bystanders like play and loved ones play a very important part in that as you have mentioned so i also want to give you a statistic of india right so marriage mm-hmm. is such a big focus in every woman's life and the whole community kind of is always geared towards when you're going to get married and mm-hmm. uh, you know when we looked at uh, death uh, um, domestic violence situations where women had died in their homes yes we found that most of the women who had died had actually gone back to their parents house a couple of times before had informed the parents that they were going through this immense violence and domestic abuse and the parents always sent them back why because girls are meant to be in their marital home and you have to always adjust you have to always try and make this work and so each of these cases where women had burned themselves where women had killed themselves where women were killed by their in-laws or their husbands incidentally they had reached out for help they had gone to their natal family and said i don't want to go back and yet time and again they would be sent back because nobody wants that married woman with her children back home and that is why women are in abusive and trapped in abusive relationships we need to put the focus where it is deserved and not put the onus like you know you made a comment just now you said her parents could not do anything why could not do anything i mean we are just um, you know um, uh painting this pretty picture of parents and brothers and you know close support groups who say we can't do anything you can't, you know you, you know the the common refrain will be that um log kya kahenge yeah or um you know um it's not acceptable society doesn't accept this and they use these as excuses to send women back so when you say the parents could not do anything the question to ask is why the first thing you should be able to tell your loved one your daughter who you have raised as a baby and you know raised to this level is do not take this violence for one minute longer my house is open to you i will take care of you we will do this together you come back right now there is where lies the problem that's really eye opening in fact i would like to rephrase myself and say that it wasn't that the parents could not do anything it's that they didn't do anything and they should have i think this is a really important insight and um, thank you for uh, giving me that insight and pointing that out because i think it's so deeply embedded in us this narrative of not doing anything or we can't do anything and it's not our place to do anything there is a person who is actively being harmed and we have to we have to reach out to them and we have to help in whatever way we can and there is 
there it is correct that in their journey there is only so much we can do but that so much can be a lot we can it can mean life and death for several people i think that is a really important insight that you have given us today and i really thank you for that um do you think that more accessible therapy or um therapeutic situations like help from psychologists and therapists and psychiatrists from being made more accessible especially in a country like india would be more helpful towards such situations of domestic abuse or violence so incidentally i come from a legal background and i have always used law as a tool to access justice in the organization that i head uh, we have a lot of women who come to understand their legal rights and these women come at different stages of their marriage they come very early on they come you know midway they come when they're very old and they all are trying to understand you know how do i get out of this what how, how because the question is not how do i get out of this when i get out of this what will happen to me how will i maintain myself how will i have a roof over my head these are the questions that plague women and of course the fear and the conditioning that has been instilled in us from childhood you know when i looked at the at the numbers um in our office in mumbai for example we would have we have about 1500 women who come uh every year to you know to just find out what can i do what can i what, what are my rights and yet only about less than 10% of them actually walk the legal journey of going to court to access their rights and it was a big concern that you know really what's happening to the other um 90% and where are they going and are they continuing in their violent situations and then it was very eye opening for us to realize that it's so much more than just having rights rights is on paper till it's accessed and unless you are mentally conditioned and ready to be believe that you can access rights to believe that you deserve that rights you know you have permission to do that uh you cannot make that transition so i myself have done a course in psychological counseling and i am a trained um counselor today and um we have a whole center who now which which has a team of uh, counselors psychologists working together to help uh women and children access these services because it's a long term work that needs to be done it's not a one sitting across the table and changing mindset so uh now we do a more therapeutic uh psychological process over multiple sessions and and then you know look at how this change is making a difference to women actually accessing their rights could you walk us through your role at majlis so could you give us some more insight about that sure sure so i um I started volunteering at Majlis when I was very young uh and I um my my expertise is in advertising and communication so I would help them with some of their communication and um just be be around you know it's only in um 2006 when um I joined Majlis um and it was a very um important one of the most important decisions of my life because you know by then i had had three children i was uh, you know wondering what i should be doing and i was really keen that 
you know, there comes a time in your life where you want to give back, you want to kind of have a more meaningful role that you're doing. And this was an opportunity which I, you know, took with both hands because um, here was an organization which had so much of presence, um, doing such amazing work. Uh, they were, you know, talk about accessing legal rights is a is an uphill task of climbing the mountain, literally, uh, because you're fighting patriarchy at its very roots. You're 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 engaging with the with the criminal justice system. You're engaging with the judges, with the police, and it's it's the it's just like a constant constant um, fight to even convince them of the own their own role that they have to play. You know, to help women, and yet you know, passion doesn't run an organization. And that's really sad because organizations need structure, they need systems, they need, you know, they need to understand how um, to build a team, how to kind of uh, motivate people. So it requires so much more than just passion. And uh, at that time, Majlis itself was going through like a low, uh, you know, people had left and it was a really small team. And so I just thought I'll come in and, you know, help out for a few years. And that was what I had committed to. And it's been now almost 15 years and I'm still here. Um, but uh, it's been an amazing journey, I have to say. It is so empowering. It is so uh, satisfying. And it just feels um, like I feel like um, there is so much work to do. But uh, there is so much strength uh, to be got from the work that we do. Uh, because just walking this journey with a victim who has faced abuse, who has been struggling uh, to, uh, to even recognize this abuse, to kind of stand up against it, and then to see the entire change that she goes through uh, in this process, the changes that she makes for herself, for her children, for people around her and it is just um, it's just worth all the effort and so that has been really satisfying and I think uh, what I really like about the organization uh, that I work with is that you know there are organizations that work on the ground uh, who are doing casework and then there are other organizations who do research publications or campaign for issues uh, and 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 I feel like this is this is a misfit because uh, the people on the ground should be the voices that speak to the top but invariably the people on the ground are doing the casework and the people on top are doing the campaign and making the demands and writing the articles and and that's where the uh, the the problem happens because then the demands are not fitting the needs of the people on the ground and so we're constantly struggling. But but in Majlis, what you what you see is that together with uh, with casework, we use our learnings of what is going wrong in the system, what is going wrong with the with the justice system, with the courts, and what women really need. We use that understanding to build campaigns, to advocate for policy change. Um, we use that and we write a lot. We really, really write a lot. Um, if you if you look up Flavia Agnes and, and how much she has written on this subject and, and really uh, path pioneering work that is now used by, uh, by academicians to kind of teach the subject. So it is bringing ground level reality to the right place, you know. 
so that's a very important transition and also uh, the policy change that we work on so when we we call ourselves a laboratory see we never aimed and we will never aim to be an alternate to the state we're not going to say we're going to open 100 majlises and we will have a thousand lawyers and you know we'll be all over the country that's never the dream and that's not the uh, purpose either the purpose is that we run this legal center so that we can understand the flaws in the system and so that we can make changes in the system and we can advocate for change and work with people who actually need to do this which is the state so we use our experience uh, so we are limited to bombay we have one office we are a small team of 30 odd women lawyers and social workers and we 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 do case work only to the extent that we can bring about policy change we can uh, do trainings that's one of the very very important aspects of our work is to then take this knowledge and this understanding to the right people so that the state can change and respond to victims because the state is so powerful and they are all over so we can't and should not hope to replace the state but we should hope to empower them to respond more accurately sensitively uh, to victims of violence so that's really been my journey and uh, yeah it's absolutely amazing to hear absolutely amazing because this organization you're not only just fighting you're reading and you're writing and you are writing things that are absolutely effective or they're absolutely necessary for our society because as you mentioned you are um, taking part in both of the aspects you are working on the ground and you're also trying to contribute to the voices at the top so i think that i think that is what we need from organizations and i think that is what makes majlis such a wonderful organization to not only um, probably work in work with in your experience but also to hear about or to um, have an interview session with because um the insights which i think majlis has given us is um, and you have given us is very very unique and it gives us a lot of realistic perspective into the situations which a lot of people might not have um thank you so much for your kind words one of the questions which i had specifically was that um what are the toughest challenges that you face while running a women's right organization in such a firmly patriarchal society thank you for asking because i very uh, when our founder started this organization uh, she made a claim that you know we will um, we will work uh, with women and children and we will work at access to justice and ensure that women are you know walking this legal journey and accessing their rights and then she also made a claim that we will be an all women team you know i feel very proud to say that in 30 years we have managed to retain all those three um founding thoughts that that she had and uh let me tell you that while it's a very simple term to say that we work with an all women team of women lawyers and social workers and i've done that for 30 years it's an extremely challenging and difficult um um step to take because as you know as women and girls uh, we are expected to play so many roles um that of nurturing that of housekeeping that of uh, taking care of the sick uh stepping in when there is a problem 
we have childbearing we have old people to take care of we have children to take care of and the kind of list never ends and so when you say you know that i work with a team of women lawyers it also means that i work with all their issues too as young girls uh, you know just just the thought of having your periods every month and what you go through because of that you know or being responsible at home because there is a mother who is not well or you know uh, if if somebody doesn't turn up you kind of have are to be at home to take care of things and then there is marriage and then marriage also means change of location because then invariably you're going to live in your husband's house which may be in another place and a lot of women have to step out of workplace uh, because they cannot continue and they have moved location and then very quickly you have children and then children mean a whole different kind of situation raising children their education their nurturing needs uh, and the story never ends you know it's like okay then you know it's the 10th standard it is school exams everything kind of falls on women and that's the reality and that is what it means to be a gender sensitized work space you know i really pull my hair out when people say oh we have uh, so many women you know we have created so many po- like we have reservation for women that's not enough that's just not enough because unless you are understanding that with women come all these issues uh, you are not a gender sensitive workspace you have to make amends and 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 you have to create spaces so for example you know i have worked with corporates so one of the programs that majlis does is we work with corporates to implement the sexu- uh, the protection of women from sexual harassment at workplace uh, because that's the mandate of the uh, of the land that every corporate should have this policy and they should have a committee etc so we we do a lot of consultancy with corporates and then we also advise them on on being a gender sensitive workspace and uh you know we talk about things like as simple as uh, performance appraisals right do you can you put the same benchmarks if if a man you know when he comes to work what he has to do is dress up and pick up his lunch box and reach work for a woman it will be like 4 hours of work before she lands up at work and then in the evenings when it comes to travel when it comes to hanging out socializing working late he can very easily do it because there's somebody at home taking care of that thing but for a woman if she's working you know she's looking at the clock because she has to be home at a certain time and that that's by by default her responsibility so she's not hanging out she's not socializing she's not doing what you call the the networking and then you say performance appraisals will be on on par so for me uh, having an all women team means so much more and it means a lot of compromise it means a lot of adjustments and we are ready to walk that talk and and do that and show how it's done and we we actually got an award for being a gender sensitive workspace i'd be happy to share with you you know the the video that they made of 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 what it really means to be a gender sensitive workspace and it's a really proud moment that you can do that and we have managed to do that for 30 years and you know uh, what it really means is that um, our peons are women right a, a position that is always always there for men because you know you have to carry the heavy things you have to do the heavy work and you have to climb up places and our women can do that or for example in court you know there is a position called the legal clerk incidentally at least in india this legal clerk 
is the guy who you know runs around carries the briefs checks the court dates there's a lot of running around in the court that needs to be done uh and so it's always a a, a position that a man gets but in our office our legal clerks are women and they do everything and they do everything as well so it's about giving them the confidence creating that space and then letting them fly and and that's what we manage to do with that i would like to um move towards more based on the status of sex workers um while i was going through the site the majlis site i think i'd seen some of the campaigns or some of the work which was done um with bar dancers okay so i will brief you tell you about the bar dancer case how it uh, panned out and what we did for it so um in mumbai we have a very peculiar what is it called entertainment uh, which is called bar dancing and please do not ever call bar dancers sex workers they're completely different things and i think people would like to paint them as one they are not uh bar dancing is a skill it requires you to stand all night and dance like bollywood dancers uh and it's extremely exhausting tiring hard work uh it's not sex work sex work is completely different it is equally you know has to be respected um so bar dancing was a practice in uh, in a certain certain bars where uh, there would be pubs or drinking places and men would go to drink in those places they would have a cordoned off area where women would dance when women would dance men would uh, kind of give money uh, to them in appreciation and that was the whole scenario right and uh, men would pay them money and the money they would get they would keep a part of it and give a part to the restaurant uh, where they were dancing now who were these dancers so they were uh, incidentally of course women who needed the money um there were women who came from um uh, other states uh, we have various dancing communities in our uh, country due to loss of work due to poverty due to various other vulnerabilities uh, they would come to mumbai and they would work in these dance bars in 2005 we had almost 75000 i'm not even sure what the number was because it's not like an organized um, labor where you can you know know these figures but basically when we did a survey it was about 75000 women who were working in bars and dancing and they were earning a living which means that because they were dancing and earning money they were taking care of their households they were managing you know their children's education and they were living their life right mm-hmm. yes now what happened was that we had this politician who decided to take on this issue what was the issue it was a basically an upper class hindu morality problem where the notion was that so women are dancing in the bars and our young men are getting spoiled because they are visiting these bars and they are spending money so we need to shut the bars we don't need to stop our men from going to bars but we need to shut the girls dancing in bars that was the camping i am uh, speechless at this point i'm not surprised of course but i am uh, speechless because i think it is absolutely necessary to pr- protect um, it's necessary to protect bar dancers it is also necessary to pr- protect sex workers it is necessary to protect women in all professions right. and in the case 
what yeah. we did in the case is we decided to um, file a petition on behalf of the bar dancers and we asked that their right to livelihood under the constitution their right to practice a profession of their choice and the right to a life and and dignity should have should be maintained so there was a campaign by this political leader and of course supported by all uh, you know our hindu morality brigade to say that shut the stop bar ban bar dancers it was called the bar dancer ban and they actually went out and banned it in 2005 they actually banned it uh, so we we fought this case in the bombay high court on behalf of the bar dancers and we won the case and then very deceitfully they went to supreme court they got a stay on our order and then supreme court did not hear that case for 10 long years oh and because of that uh, bars could not function dancing could not happen in in bombay and it was a tragedy because all these women who were supporting their families then had to go underground many of them had to move to sex work because they had to sustain their families a lot of them were traded and sent abroad to work and it just it it was such a sad and 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 a, a sad day in our history and our country uh, that we let uh, our women down women who were earning a livelihood they were practicing a profession they were they, they, what what was needed was uh, to put it into perspective and it went so out of hand that uh, the only people who suffered was them uh, and nobody cared you know for all the talk that we talk about protecting women and the whole campaign was about protecting women but really nobody was interested in protecting women nobody cared about those women and uh, you know some of the things the government said was they should do respectful jobs like making papad and pickle um and you know getting proper jobs and yet even for making the papad and pickle the government did nothing and nobody now knows where these women are and it is a tragedy and travesty of justice so that's my closing point um thank you so much for doing this podcast with us uh, today audrey it was incredible speaking to you it was definitely eye opening and um i wish you all the best uh, with the future thank of you. our